When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As ever, with working mothers, it's a juggle, isn't it? The juggle struggle is very real. Four. How dreadful that the British people should be allowed to use their own personal responsibility to decide what risks they take. Three. Ministers talk the talk of putting children first. The words are betrayed by the actions. Two. I almost lost my dentures when I said that. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So has the Saj been had? New Health Secretary Sajid Javid was doing so well, insisting that anti-Covid restrictions must come to an end. Such an improvement on dead hand Hancock. But are the doom-monger scientists, the Whitehall blob, now consuming Sajid Javid too? On Monday, the nation was handed a joyful 19th of July COVID contract. The next day, the nasty fine print. One of the harshest restrictions will remain in place until August the 16th at least. The requirement to self-isolate if you've been in contact with a COVID-infected person, even if you yourself test negative and have been double-jabbed. Cue ongoing misery for countless families, desperate to take a holiday at home or abroad. Cue misery for hundreds of thousands of self-isolating schoolchildren, given that the dreaded bubble system will also stay in place until August the 16th. But don't worry, Alison, the NHS has just been awarded the George Cross. So that's all right then. (laughs) Do you still believe in Freedom Day, Copilot Pearson? Do you still believe in the SAG? You might be being a bit harsh, co-pilot Halleck. I mean, how much better is this man than the slithy Tove, who was the the predecessor in the role? As you said to me off air, and you said to me, I'll disclose this to Planet Normal listeners, you said, thank God for Gina, who was the bit on the side. And then you said, we can't possibly say that on Planet Normal. But we can. And I have just said it. Thank God for Gina whisking Matt off to a better place. Maybe she was a kind of honey trap (laughs) by the British state on itself to get rid of Matt Hancock. (laughs) Exactly. Or the British public come to that. Look, yes, I'm going to be honest here. I can see why there's been a bit of a kerfuffle, disappointment. You know, are we really going to have this thing, stretch this thing out to August the 16th? And of course, lots of people are, are up in arms about it. I am so desperate, co-pilot, for a rational grown-up to have some faith in a minister who gets the harm done to other people with other illnesses, someone who cares about the economy and jobs, which, as you've said multiple times, Halligan, doesn't mean being a hard-hearted capitalist. It just means realising that people depend on money and jobs. And as you said in your column on Sunday, somebody who gets the data. And I do think Sajid Javid has made a broadly very promising start. I don't know if you saw, he did an interview with Sky News and there was there was a real anger and passion in his voice when he said that on taking up the job of health secretary, he had been shocked to find that 7 million people had not come forward for hospital treatment. And guess what? There were other diseases, apparently, which now needed urgent attention. And he also said, Liam, that he was the health secretary, not the COVID secretary. And how long have the denizens of Planet Normal waited for somebody in government to say that? Now, I suspect this uh, August the 16th delay. I don't know what you make of it, but I suspect they're kind of very nervous about creating an apartheid between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed, and specifically between the old and the young. A lot of people think that people in their teens and 20s have paid a very high price for a virus which broadly kills mainly the over 70s. So I am thinking 
that that's partly what lies behind this. And he may, Javid may also have felt he needed to throw a bit of a bone to the lockdown zero COVID zealots who, have you noticed, Liam, they are well and truly throwing their toys out of the pram. And before you tell me what you think, I just want to point out Boris seemed quite morose, didn't he, at that number 10 press briefer on Monday. You know, he could have been saying, whoopee do, you know, you can all go and enjoy yourselves. But he said, don't get D-Mob happy. He also said, if not now, open up when? And that is the key question. But I should just say to you, Liam, look what Boris is up against. The Labour Party accusing him making these perfectly sensible measures that are being taken by other countries. Keir Starmer said he was reckless. And Jonathan Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, who I've often had quite a lot of time for, said, I don't think any avoidable deaths are acceptable. I mean, this is what we are up against. He doesn't think a single life lost to COVID is acceptable but there have been well over 50,000 excess deaths in the home during the past year. So Labour, as our great colleague Philip Johnson said in his column this week, is basically setting the Prime Minister a test he is doomed to fail. What do you make of it, Halligan? I am being a little bit harsh on Sajid Javid. You're right. I did write last weekend what, what I do believe, which is that the combination of him and Rishi Sunak too extremely numerate, data-driven people, people who are comfortable in the way the Prime Minister will never be with spreadsheets, people who are financial analysts first and foremost. That was where they started out on their careers. And you never lose that acumen with figures, in my view. Of course, they're playing big league politics. Of course, um, Boris Johnson and the Cabinet as a whole, even with These two now coming to the fore, the Chancellor and the Health Secretary, they have to monitor what's going on politically. They have to pander, frankly, to the zero COVID zealots. And I think you're right to use the word zealots. And that brings us, Liam, to this really kind of quite stinging news of the week, which is that the NHS has been awarded the George Cross. And and that really took me aback. I think it took a lot of people aback. It looks like it came from Her Majesty the Queen, but Charles Moore in in an extremely good column this week in The Telegraph said it was a, a political decision, really. And it's a decision which makes criticism of the NHS even harder at a time when I think you and I and Planet Normal listeners agree that we need the maximum scrutiny of what's gone on. Clearly, There were thousands of frontline doctors, nurses, paramedics who covered themselves in glory during those dreadful nights and days of the peak of the pandemic. But equally, there were parts of the NHS were an utter shambles and a disgrace. It became the COVID health service, requisitioning private hospitals for hundreds of millions of pounds, not using two thirds of them when they were surgeons earning 150, 200,000 pounds a year itching to get in to operate on their patients who are basically told to stay at home. GPs, many GPs, despite what the Royal College of General Practitioners said, who totally shut up shop, asking 80-year-olds to send in selfies of moles on their back. And let me just quote something that Charles Moore said. The NHS is not, as a whole, a suitable recipient of a medal invented to recognise, quote, acts of the greatest heroism or of the most conspicuous courage in circumstances of extreme danger for an outstanding nurse, doctor or paramedic. Yes, for an entire gigantic bureaucracy. No. So I say this with a heavy heart, but I think a significant proportion of suffering during the COVID pandemic was caused by the NHS. It was ill-prepared. It couldn't adapt quickly. Some of the best interventions were made by private people and organisations, including Kate Bingham and the Vaccine Task Force. Its relationships with care homes were dire, killed thousands of people. Protect the NHS, Liam, this slogan that was used to justify the lockdown. I mean, if you can believe it, and these people will not give up, and this is what Boris and Sajid Javid are up against. Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, 
saying this week that uh, Britain won't return to normality this year. Heavens no. I mean, what are all those other countries have managed to get back to normality? But Britain won't be returning to normality this year. Some restrictions, said Witty, the chief medical officer, may have to be rolled back later this year when, get this, Halligan, wait for this, the NHS will be facing a difficult winter. Yeah, well, I've got news for you, Professor Witty. The British people have faced a difficult spring, summer, autumn, winter, and another spring, summer, and probably another autumn and winter. And we are not going to not return to normality because that's what you know. the Prime Minister said, if not now, when? And we will not be held back anymore by scientists because the suffering now vastly outweighs the benefits of lockdown. I think it's um, the four happiest words in the English language, we told you so. Planet Normal has been going on about this, hasn't it, for about, well, feels like forever, but I think it's (laughs) only 16 months. But Chris Whitty has another thing he said this week, that the NHS is planning a £10 billion cancer blitz. He was warning that the indirect effects of the COVID pandemic are, quote, as major as the crisis itself. Well, who knew? Except co-pilot Halligan, me and Planet Normal listeners, we all knew. So I guess it's encouraging to see that they realise this cancer, you know, this cancer crisis is very, very real. Um, Just coming back to where we are at the moment, where we talked about, didn't we, Liam, that because there aren't very many COVID deaths anymore, They've been, I'm going to use that word you used. I like hearing you say it, fetishizing. Almost lost my dentures when I said that. <laughs> I, could, I could see. You know. It was like you're, you're doing like a run up at the badminton horse trials of one of those three three part fences. You know, the ones where they end up falling off in the water. Nearly got three <laughs> points for a refusal there. Three points. <laughs> and good job we weren't in, we're not in the same room, Alison, because there was plenty of aerosol spraying going on. I was going to say. Aerosols are what you put your hairspray in. Since when have people been able Use the word aerosol for people. What's all that about? We've come to really rely, haven't we, on George, our NHS England insider, who is absolutely has absolute mastery of the data, which many other people don't see. And I and I and I thought that given Liam that we're now being still being terrorized by cases, even Sajid Javid was saying we could be, you know, coming up to whatever it was, a hundred thousand cases a week and so on. So George is a senior source within NHS England who talks to Planet Normal, he or she, we don't disclose, has full access to the internal data. Uh, We're very confident of the authenticity of George's stats, which is why we report them on Planet Normal. But by definition, we can't do what journalists would ordinarily do, which is to independently verify these numbers, because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're ever published at all. That's right. And I was quite incensed this week. You'll be amazed to learn that. You incensed? <laughs> incensed. Yeah, there was after Boris said that the restrictions were going to be relaxed on July the 19th. And some of our fellow commentators in the media were, of course, you know, reaching for the smelling salts. So how dreadful that the British people should be allowed to use their own personal responsibility to decide what risks they take, you know, what whatever next. So I asked George what he or she made of the press briefing at which the Prime Minister was flanked by Sir Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty. And George says... There is a continuing but small rise in COVID hospital patients. But I hate the way Patrick Vallance continues to push this statistical sleight of hand. At the start of Monday's media briefing, he admitted that most people in hospital with COVID are unvaccinated. Then they showed us how low hospital admissions are compared to the number of cases. And he said the link between infections and hospitalizations is weakened. Weakened? The link is smashed to smithereens, mate. Who is Valance trying to fool to even talk about there being a rise in deaths when the graph he's pointing at is basically showing a flat line is utterly ludicrous. At least this time, Boris wasn't trying to use that data to justify a further delay to the lifting of restrictions, but they could certainly have been much more bullish about the current picture, which is really good. And just quickly, Liam, currently in England, there are 1,879 COVID inpatients or people who just happen to test positive 
for COVID after entering hospital. That's out of about 110,000 beds. So 1,879 COVID patients out of about 110,000 beds. There are 367 COVID patients in intensive care, about 20% of the current total, which George says is about the highest proportion it's been. Now, George, this is interesting for you, Liam, because you understand all this stuff. Uh, George says, to give the overall case numbers versus hospital admissions some context, on the two previous occasions when we had this number of daily cases, that was in mid-December and again in mid-January, there were 15,000 and 33,500 people in hospital respectively and 1,300 and 4,000 in intensive care. So we have a tiny fraction of COVID cases being hospitalised now compared to through the winter. And I think, well said, George, we are sick of seeing those figures on the nightly news when you actually think 450 people will die today, Liam, of cancer. I am sick of being shown COVID deaths, 13 deaths, 17 deaths, 27 deaths. Other people's deaths matter too. I'm Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. So, co-pilot, who's stowed away in the Planet Normal rocket this week? Well, Liam, because there's been such a pro-lockdown consensus among the powerful with, as we've discussed today, hardly any thought given to those who've been suffering from these cruel and often arbitrary restrictions, it has fallen to ordinary men and women to form an opposition, to be the voice of the powerless. And there are three women who fall into that doughty category And they formed a pressure group called Us For Them. Us For Them has campaigned for 16 months against measures in schools, which the group considers punitive and unnecessary. They say they had a visceral reaction as mums to these horrible things that were causing children so much stress. Molly Kingsley trained as a lawyer before founding tech startups. She now works as a writer, often for the Daily Telegraph, a campaigner, and she's mum to two lovely little girls. Christine Brett is a health economist and a kids yoga teacher who also has two children. Christine spent most of her career working in the pharma industry, looking at real world data. So she was well qualified to challenge some of the stats the public were given about the threat that children pose to public health. Liz Cole, the third member of the trio, has been described as the rabble rouser of the group. Liz is a marketing consultant and the mum of a 12 and 14-year-old. I think it's pretty telling, Liam, that it's these three ordinary mums, no experience of politics or campaigning, who endured a baptism of fire in an attempt to protect all our babies. In the week when 641,000 pupils were off school thanks to mass testing of healthy children. I began by asking them what it had felt like being introduced at such speed to the art of campaigning. I think, to be honest, I was quite naive when we started it. I thought we'd have it all done and dusted by um, about a year ago, actually. Um, <laughs> so um, it's been quite a journey. And I think, you know, the fact that we are now isolating not just children, but healthy children from school shows just how 
myopic people's focus has become on this virus. You know, these are children that are tested at the moment twice a week. Mm. So they're not children that, you know, are showing any symptoms or signs. In fact, the only ones that have tested positive, I think it's something like 4% of the ones that are off school. So for every child that's off school, there's, you know, 20 plus friends that are off school and they're well, and they must be so frustrated because they're not just off school. They are not allowed to go to their activities. They're not allowed to go outside and play with their friends. But these kids are well. So <laughs> I think to reach this point now after 15 months is just quite incredible that a society that's supposedly putting education first is actually stopping children from going to school when there's nothing wrong with them. So Gavin Williamson has just announced that school bubbles will end in England on July the 19th, which, as anyone who isn't the Secretary of State for Education knows, is actually the end of term. Williamson also says pupils will only need to self-isolate if they test positive on the 16th of August. Christine, 16 months ago, us for them started its first campaign, hashtag not OK, which was specifically against social distancing in schools. For the benefit of Planet Normal listeners who don't have children in school, can you explain to us what the bubbles are, how they worked and and what you think their effect has been? So bubbles, a very unfortunate term, I feel, were used to set up smaller groups of children. So a class of children or maybe a year group of children, depending on the size of the school and whether they were primary or secondary. And what this meant for children was they weren't allowed to mix with children outside that explicit group. So the implications for this are that children who joined school in September as reception and would have had a buddy in year six didn't have a buddy. They didn't have somebody to carry their tray for them in the dining hall. Um, I actually get quite emotional about that, thinking about my own daughter starting. Yeah, yeah. And what it meant for secondary school children was that, you know, they weren't allowed to access parts of the school. So my daughter started secondary school in September and she hasn't been inside a science lab in this year. She hasn't been inside home economics room or whatever they're called now, the cooking lessons. She hasn't been inside an art studio or a drama studio. They were literally kept in these groups in a very confined area of the school and it meant that they didn't mix with other year groups and it's a real shame because it's not just about you know keeping smaller groups of children some children really suffer and struggle and they they like to be able to talk to their sibling at break time or at lunchtime and that hasn't been possible. Molly I know that you've been working we've all three of you been working practically 24 7 to see the abolition of bubbles but why wait until July the 19th? It's a very good question. And I think it really struck me that, you know, once again, we had Gavin Williamson paying lip service to the need to put children first. I think he even used those words. But actually, in practice, we're not putting them first because, of course, adults will be liberated on July the 19th. But the practical impact for many, many schools, you know, they'll be closed by then or about to close. So actually, this is putting children last again. Actually, one of the things about all of this is I think the impacts of what we're doing will take many years to really translate. And obviously, we are learning now, you know, there's hard data and there's hard statistics about some of the harms, the number of days lost, the, you know, the impact on social mobility and future earnings. But actually, a lot of this isn't measurable like that. And I think as, you know, as Christine says, what will be the value loss of children not going in science labs? What will be the value loss of splitting them up from friends, of cutting them out of experiences and activities that they should be doing? Liz, just thinking about the position from August, almost the start of next term, in fact, when kids won't have to self-isolate if they test negative, are you concerned that mass testing looks like it will continue in our schools? Yeah, we are concerned about that. And again, we feel that there's a lack of proportionality there because if we're continuing mass testing, and I think they did say that could be reviewed at the end of September, we're still going to have a situation where children are subject to more restrictions than adults are. And then on the first day of term again, children are going to be tested and children will be will be sent home. And it's also starting off the academic year with that anxiety of almost having to 
prove your medical status to access education, which is not setting the new academic year on the right foot when we know that this is actually going to be the third academic year that's been disrupted for children, third year. I would just have really liked to have seen starting afresh so that they can actually move back to normality and start this year at least with a clean slate. But it seems this is going to continue into year three. And for some children, that's just it's just devastating because all they'll know is this disruption. It's a huge chunk of a young life, isn't it? Like, can we go back to the very beginning, May 2020? There you were, three very busy working mothers, no previous experience of politics, and suddenly, bang, you're starting this national campaign in your kitchens. Molly, can you tell Planet Normal listeners how Us For Them got started? And was there one thing in particular that shocked you into action? Yes, there was. I mean... For me, so at the time, my kids were three and six, and there was a photo flying around the internet of French playground, French concrete playground, and there were oh, these little yes. toddlers. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you remember, remember yeah, it. Yeah, um, I do. These little horrifying. toddlers sitting in two by two meter squares, and I, I was just horrified. I just thought, how can any society treat its children like this? And I know, you know, we knew it was France, but there were rumours by that point of it coming here. We were obviously into school closures by then. And I just wrote a very kind of heartfelt blog post, which you were kind enough to retweet, Alison. And I think that, you know, it was through that and through through Twitter (laughs) that um, we got together and and met Liz and and Christine. And we realised that we, we all shared this really visceral is the word I always use, but this really visceral sense that that this this was wrong. Yeah, I kept opening the papers thinking, I'm sure there's going to be something in here about children and are we going to prioritise children? And you know that in any disaster planning situation, we would always prioritise children, but there was almost no discourse. And so having never been on Twitter at all, (laughs) I then (laughs) turned to Twitter and actually it was on your feed, Alison, where we saw some of the only discourse about the impact on children at all. And, you know, from there connected with Molly, but it was nothing in really in the mainstream media. And I, I was just shocked by that and really thought, well, if nobody else is saying anything, then we have to say something, even if it isn't a popular thing to say at the time. We, we have to speak up and speak what we feel is, is the right thing to, to say. Yes, absolutely. Christine, you've spent most of your career working in the pharma industry, looking at real world data and what happens when people are treated in practice and how it affects them. Were you taken aback that there seemed to be no risk analysis about what closing schools might do to students? Yeah, I was. And I, you know, my sister at the time was living in Sweden and her daughter continued to go to Mm. school. So I, I did a bit of an a bit of a back of the you know envelope analysis on this and looked at the uh, the rates in children in Sweden and, and the UK and saw that they were actually the same. So you know from an outcomes perspective, I couldn't understand how we could justify closing schools when actually this was a virus that happily didn't affect children badly, and I couldn't understand where the justification was coming from that closing schools would actually solve this problem. And I think throughout this campaign, we've sought to ask for the information. I think we're a thorn in the side of all the FOI people at the Department of Education to ask for evidence that actually the policies are justified. Because from my experience, we never impose an intervention and closing schools is an intervention, but we never impose an intervention on sick children without considering the risks and the benefits let alone healthy children. I mean, the bar has to be much, much higher for healthy children. And yet they seem to just talk about reduction in transmission and they never talked about actually what harms would be caused by doing this. And we know now, very sadly, Mm. as we Mm. thought at the time, that the harms are immense. Well, those of us have been banging on about this for, you know, over a year about people who aren't getting medical treatment and obviously the children's lack of education and it fills us with no joy, does it? I don't think no. to having all this stuff come out. Christine, you mentioned that in Sweden, obviously they never 
they never closed the schools. I think actually they probably did did close schools for a while for the over 16s or maybe it was the over yes. 14s, but certainly primary and junior were never closed. And I know that us for them wrote to the Department of Education and to other people charged with looking after children's interests, clearly expecting that they would soon realise how bad this was for kids and make it stop. I noticed that this week, actually, the NSPCC has finally raised its head above the parapet. I bet that gave you a bitter smile. Would it be fair to say that you were a bit naive initially in thinking that this was all a mess that could be sorted out? Molly? Yes, I think we were. I mean, I think we genuinely thought that what had happened was a panicked emergency response and an oversight. And that actually, when we wrote very polite, but, you know, quite firm letters, they would say, oh, sorry, yes, of course, children are important and we must put them first. And the gradual realisation over the last year has obviously been that that's not happened and that actually whilst ministers do talk the talk and they speak occasionally, as Gavin did yesterday, of putting children first, the the words are consistently betrayed by the actions. And I think, you know, going back to obviously your point about writing to people at, at the beginning, Alison, we did. We wrote to everyone. We wrote, you know, not only to government, we wrote to, I think, every single of the main children's charities, letter after letter. And, and we were dismayed, really, by the fact that no one else, it seemed, wanted to put their heads above the parapet and actually and speak up. And yes, it's, it's, it's fantastic that people are now but it's been a long time coming. Liz, do you think that was to do with children per se? That Obviously, they are the most voiceless and, you know, in many ways the most vulnerable. But, you know, let's put it crudely, they're not voters, are they? I think there is something in that. I also think there's this kind of persistent and insidious idea that children are resilient. And I think that's one of the worst things that's come through mm. from this pandemic, this sense that children are so resilient that they can adapt to anything, that anything that we throw at them, they can bear. And they can't. And I felt for quite a long time that this phrase and this sense of resilience has just been a way for, I'm sorry to say, for adults to justify the fact that they haven't protected children when actually they, they should have done. And I really think we have to ask ourselves some really tough questions as a society about how we actually think about children, how we prioritise them. You know, the things we say about children now, that they're vectors, variant reservoirs, variant factories. It's dehumanising and othering of children. And how child-centred are we as a society? I would say not very. And I think that was there before, probably. I've heard mums saying, and I've heard personally with friends with small children where they've developed tics, they've started scratching themselves. I mean, you know, just going from very sunny, uh, happy little boys and girls to quite neurotic children worried about everything. We're starting to know now, aren't we, about the mental health consequences of lockdown for children. The Telegraph actually had a story recently that 27,000 kids had been put on antidepressants. I mean, presumably counselling hasn't even been available during this period. Um, What has us for them found out about the psychological effects on children? Molly? I mean, it's just been devastating that, you know, we've heard more stories than, than we you know, have been able to give to press, although we've been trying to highlight um, things as we hear them. But it, it's obviously had a devastating impact. And I think the thing that's really struck me about it is, you know, as Liz says, we call children resilient and there's a view that they bounce back. But actually some of the things that we've seen through us for them, you know, these children will never recover. And, you know, Alison, you mentioned the example of the ticks, And I think possibly the most harrowing the most harrowing story that I've heard was from a parent who had a teenage girl who, in the course of the second school lockdown, I think it was, developed really disabling tics. And it was it was just heartbreaking. And I just think, you know, some of these children may go on to be OK, but actually it's it's not as simple as, oh, let's prescribe them antidepressants and, you know they'll get over it. And many of these children won't. And and I think, you know, at the same time, of course, that we took away schools, we've taken away everything. Mm. So it's not just school, it's 
all the things that would have made them happy to play outside. You know, we were taping up yes. their playgrounds. What does that say to yes. a child? I, I, I think that for me, that seeing particularly city parks, bolt, the gates bolted, <laughs> when you thought that that was probably for people with children in flats, that was going to be their only, you know, escape, really. I, I, I still can't believe that we did that in this country. I have a distinct memory, you may have the same, of the Prime Minister announcing to the nation that people could go back to work. It was probably June last year and literally every parent in the country yelled at the TV but the schools aren't open how the hell are we supposed to get back to work do you think that I mean this is my suspicion that many of the big lockdown decisions have been made by male politicians in their little power bubble who have very little knowledge or understanding of children or schools Molly Yes. I mean, it's hard to resist coming to that conclusion, isn't it? It, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly, I think, must be the case that too many decisions have been made by people who either don't have children or don't look after those children in a way that, you know, the vast majority of parents in this country do. Because I'm just not sure you could have come to these conclusions if you did. Partly, on a child welfare point of view, but actually partly also just on a logistical point of view. I mean, you, you know, you couldn't do a job and have two young children there in the way that actually most of us have been asked to do that. But more, I think more fundamentally than that, it, it seems that there has been a real dearth of advocacy within government for children. I don't know whether that's a lack of parents or because the decisions have been made by men or possibly both. But something has gone very, very wrong from that point of view. Liz, we've seen the sort of spectre of vaccinations for children coming up. And there was quite, a, for me, a disturbing headline saying that 80% of parents would have their children vaccinated. Has there been adequate information given to parents, given that it's on the record that children are at little risk from the virus, particularly if they're younger, and also that the vaccine may pose only a tiny risk, but nevertheless, it's it's a bigger risk than getting COVID for a small child. What are us for them's views on vaccinating kids? So I think, as we've always been, is we, we're considered about with risk benefit um, proportion. So I would say around these polls that, that we, we see where parents are supportive, mm. I think the reason that parents are supportive is because of the disruption in schools and that disruption in schools is a policy decision this is a false problem if you like for a vaccine for children to solve you know we're keen to hear what the JCVI has to say about that it sounds as though they're not going to be recommending mass vaccine rollout for all children at this time and that's a, a view that we would share, certainly for vulnerable, clinically vulnerable children. That's a different question. But a mass rollout for healthy children, it's very hard to see how that risk benefit could stack up um, as it stands on the information that we have. But I think that I do think that the problem is, is that parents have experienced so much disruption they're looking for any solution when actually what we should be doing is ring fencing schooling, ring fencing education and protecting children by restoring their lives to normal now that adults have been largely protected. Can I ask for some highs and lows for the campaign? I mean, you've, I think you've each got two children, haven't you, of, of various ages. So you must have had the stress of, sorry, mummy's running a national campaign to protect children. But Christine, can I ask you for a a high or a low of, of, of the past 16 months? I mean, I think, I think we're on quite a high today, actually. You know, if I'm honest, I feel quite euphoric, even though it's taken us as long as it's taken us. Yeah. You know, to finally have social distancing dropped in schools is, is a big win. And I didn't think it would take us this long. I think in terms of lows, I think last summer was particularly frantic when we were all trying to we're all under canvas for some strange reason at different points in the summer, trying to frantically do radio interviews from our cars and you know <laughs> keep the kids from screaming at inappropriate moments. So it's been, I mean, as ever with working mothers, it's a juggle, isn't it? We're always juggling. You know, the juggle struggle is very real. Yes. And we just added another layer into the mix, I think, with the campaign. And, you know, 
as I said before, it wasn't something that, you know, if anybody else had come forward, we'd have been delighted. But we looked (laughs) around and we were alone. So I think we felt like we had no choice, really. I was going to ask you, have you have you all cried at some point, Molly? Have you cried? Oh, yes. (laughs) There's been lots of tears. I mean, it, it really has been a roller coaster. And I think that, you know, I, I too have felt at risk of it being a bit of a savage irony, really, at times with my own family. And mm. I think it's fair to say we've probably got a bit better at that. And, you know, I think I think once we've realised that we're in it probably for the long term, at least the medium term, we've had to get better at adjusting our own, you know, lives yeah. and the work-life balance. And I think... I think for me, though, the, the, you know, the tears and the kind of ultimate darkness are really about where we are as a society. I, I, I'm very concerned about the way that people who have tried to challenge the official narrative have been treated. I think the treatment of children has just been appalling. And, and I, I feel really quite depressed, actually, about, about where we are. I'm very much hoping that Us For Them is going to be there on the landscape now. We need you in the trenches. Christine, what would you say, what would Us For Them be looking at as a, as a recovery plan for children? I mean, I think there is there is a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, the first thing I would say is we have to stop the harm before we can really start the recovery. And until we've stopped the harm, it's very difficult to imagine, you know, we're just kind of pouring water into a into a bottomless bucket, really. Mm. You know, I don't think people can underestimate what an impact this will have to children going forward. We have basically made children scared of the people that they trust. You know, I, I grew up in the 70s where we had, you know, stranger danger and mm. all the rest of it. And now we've actually told people to stay away from people that they love. And yes. that is massively harmful. So I think there's a lot of repair that we need to do as a society and I think that has to start in in the home but you know for a lot of children school is their safe place and that has been made somewhere that they feel fearful and I think you know that's that's a real tragedy that we've done that that you know some of these children now won't probably ever go back to school and 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 I think it's really sad that we've actually not protected the vulnerable in this in fact we've we've harmed the vulnerable if we're honest. Liz Yeah, so I agree with Christine that I think we've just got to stop creating this harmful environment for them. So a a restoration to pre-2020 normality in that autumn term and actually over the summer. And I think that whatever the government is doing about recovery, it needs to be treated urgently. There's a little bit too much talk and little action as far as I can see. And I think a real focus on the things that they have missed, not just the academic catch up, but also the sports that they've missed. We know children are less physically fit than they were. The drama, the music, yeah. um, making sure they do have access to practical subjects and extracurricular activities. To me, those are as important to help restore well-being, but it will need you know, some a national will and energy to make that happen and I think being creative drawing on volunteer schemes and and things like that to build a really holistic approach for kids is important for us now. Molly I know you're very passionate about this. Yeah I mean I think the only things I'd add to that is we need you know in a way the pandemic's probably just brought out problems that were there latent in the system anyway and I think it's fair to say that education has been you know underfunded by comparison to other departments particularly healthcare for quite a long time now it would be great to see education being put on a longer term and more sustainable funding plan and I think as well what what I would like to see is a total overhaul of how we do early years there's been a lot of talk about educational recovery but actually hardly any about early years the whole early years sector has only been offered 18 million for the whole sector by way of recovery and actually in in some ways early years children have um come out of this even worse it's just we don't we don't hear as much about them but when you think that 40 percent of the gcse attainment gap has already emerged by age five it it tells you how important those first five years are Mm. so I think for that reason also um because that would be a really great thank you actually to parents particularly mothers who Mm. have given a lot Mm. up over this last year year and a half 
actually putting early years and childcare on a better plan is, is, is something that I would really, really welcome. I saw on Twitter when there was the announcement that uh, social distancing in schools would be would be stopped and someone paid tribute to us for them, a wonderful tribute to you all saying about these ballsy, fantastic women who had fought with every tenacious fibre of their maternal beings for all our children and grandchildren. So a huge thank you to Molly, Christine and Liz for doing that. And I have one final question, ladies, and you can answer this one together. Are you ready? <laughs> Should Gavin Williamson remain the Secretary of State for Education? No. 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 <laughs> Alison, what a formidable group of women. I tell you, I had to... I was cowering in the corner of the Planet Normal <laughs> capsule. I know, they, they are great. And I think that they spoke very honestly, Liam, because they have had to do the work that I believe the Her Majesty's opposition should have been doing instead of demanding ever harsher and harsher restrictions on, on the people that I believe the Labour Party exists to protect. It's fallen to people like Molly, Christine and Liz to speak up for children, we increasingly see that some of these measures, children wearing masks, um, all the things they described, I mean, the terrible mental health effects, the ticks and so on, was very struck, actually. I think it was Liz saying how much she objects to people saying, oh, children are resilient, you know, like they're little bouncy balls. A lot of children are not going to come out well for this pandemic, Liam. It's deeply serious. And I'm very grateful that these women, you know, who didn't have any previous experience have ridden the rapids and taken a lot of abuse. They've been accused of being right-wing plants, which is, you know, comically far from the truth and so on, and, you know, linked to all sorts of groups and anti-vaxxers when they're nothing of the kind. But they've survived. And I think that what they've done is they've been able to put pressure on the government about things that are really shameful and damaging. And I think it's worth just telling Planet Normal listeners about how the three of them met and how you met. We often deride social media, don't we? We often think it's a waste of time. But the four of you, four incredibly impressive, powerful women advocates for a point of view that's widely held across the country, not only by parents, but the population generally, a point of view which hasn't really got much of a hearing in the House of Commons with the official opposition taking a completely different line. You met on social media. You got together as a result of those interactions. That's really that's really special. But yes, I mean, they. I think that they were driven by this sense that something was very wrong indeed in what was happening to children. And I felt that that came from maternal instinct and, and, and something we discussed, Liam, and this isn't to decry the sensitivities or the feelings of fathers, but I think that my own deep suspicion, growing suspicion has been that too many decisions have been made by a cabal, a narrow cabal of men, both in cabinet and in these scientific committees, and they are not the men who remember, you know, what their child's class teacher is called or any of that domestic minutiae. And I do firmly believe that if we'd had a bit more input from mothers and grandmothers, a lot of the measures that we've seen causing so much harm would just have been dismissed as awful and lacking in common sense. I think that's absolutely a fair and accurate comment, Alison. Completely agree with you. Uh, I would also say that far too many broadcasters have far too few mums working in them also. And I, again, I don't say that to decry people in, in my industry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broadcaster as well as a writer, as, as you know. And I think if there were more working age mums in newsrooms, then the coverage would be very different. Yes, I do think that. And just as we go to air, of course, with Planet Normal, we've heard that Gavin Williamson is ending the bubble system at schools. The bubble system, which, as you said earlier in the podcast, means that 640,000 kids are currently off school because 20,000 <laughs> tested positive using tests which the highly respected Food and Drug Administration of the US says, quote, should be put in the trash, mm. unquote, and I guess 
I, why don't we end it now? <laughs> There's still three weeks of school left for lots of children. There's all those rite of passage, end of term things that go on at a time when kids' mental health has been hammered, where they need to get back together with their peer groups. They need to get back together with the kids of their cohort, not least so they can, you know, hang out together in the summer holidays to reconnect. I think it's mindless to not end the bubble system now. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the incredible, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. And of course, we steal your best ideas. Um, This is one that caught my eye this week from Michael, a grandfather who's reflecting on the suffering of children. I'm sure there are thousands of stories like this. My eight-year-old grandson is leaving his school at the end of term. I've just received this message from my daughter, which I wish to share with you. Edward's class were told about their isolating at the end of the day, and they had 20 minutes to clear their books, work, pencil cases, water bottles, etc. Apparently, they all helped each other get their things in their backpacks. They were kept in their classroom and dismissed 10 minutes later than normal to keep them away from the rest of the school. The tears and sorrow on the faces of the children were too much to bear. All of the children, without exception, were either crying or had been crying. Some children were hysterical. I have never seen so many children so distraught in one place. It was impossibly hard to witness and can only be described as cruelty. Edward was very red-eyed and cried again when he saw me. He said, Mummy, I'll never see my classroom again. What is a mother supposed to say to that? I have no words to describe how sad I felt. And Michael, who's Edward's grandfather, continues, This government has wreaked misery on so many. They began with the elderly imposing separation and preventing dignity and death. They have destroyed livelihoods, but most disgracefully of all, they failed our children. They've caused untold harm to their education and to their mental well-being. I have told my daughter that things like this are very trying and upsetting, but how we deal with them is a measure of what we are. It sets us apart from the fools whose dogmatic policies have done so much damage. We must overcome this with determination and dignity. We owe it to little Edward to do that. Thank you for all you have done in your Planet Normal podcast with Liam to fight against all the injustice and idiocy we have been subjected to over the past 15 months. It's our absolute pleasure, Michael. And thank you for that really touching email. Blimey, that's very, very powerful stuff. This is from Linda. I used to work in the NHS in Newham, East London. The NHS was staffed by a United Nations of overseas trained health professionals. Almost every problem I encountered came from the management, particularly the civil servants. I've never worked in an organisation so hierarchical, where decisions were so far removed from the needs of patients. Barely any manager walked the floor or spoke to patients. In my view, we will never, ever make the desperately needed changes to the NHS until it is no longer the political football, top-level news story that it is, always playing to emotions and not to grown-up discussion. Nor will anything change until the news broadcasters stop mindlessly eulogising the entire NHS. 95% of patient contact is with primary care, writes Linda. We treat our doctors and nurses as if they're priests in a religion. That's wrong. It only speaks to our own lack of knowledge, experience, naivety, and frankly, cowardice in not wanting to think about the times when we were not treated well, or might be at the mercy of the NHS. I'm finding more and more people who agree with me that NHS staff are actually a very mixed bag. I have encountered, of course, wonderful doctors, some excellent nurses, but many more average nurses and GPs. And some have been ageist, sexist, and frankly, should not have been in a role that's supposed to be vocational. I would not have awarded the George Cross to everyone in the NHS, covering management and all those in primary care, where you've so ably campaigned on how some GPs have utterly failed their patients. 
I've tried ceaselessly to raise questions of why so many GPs diverted to run vaccination centres and hubs, thus removing themselves at a stroke from seeing patients. I believe there were two reasons. For GPs, it was an easy way to make money and remove themselves from the daily grind. And also, the, the application process for retired medics to return to work, helping with those jabs, was dreadful and soul-destroying. The latter stopped numerous former health professionals from returning. I've spoken to them. I know it to be true. Giving an injection does not require huge skill. It can be taught easily, to even to a non-health professional volunteer. But the NHS did its usual, forced bureaucracy on the process to save itself from any conceivable risk. No matter that this risk was tiny. Public Health England, like the rest of the made-up quangocracies they invented, is utterly unfit for purpose. Much of NHS England is unfit for purpose. I'm a full-time volunteer for a regional carer's society. Throughout the pandemic, I and my colleagues have given hours of support to family carers. The latter are barely mentioned by the media. And yet the NHS and social care would both collapse without those family carers who are the ultimate volunteers. We clap the volunteers who man the vaccination car parks. When do we clap family carers and give them a George Cross for their unpaid, unstinting, unnoticed, 24-7, 365 days a year doing nursing, which is what it is for many carers, and taking on the tasks that used to be done by the NHS. And Michael says, you and your colleague, Mr. Halligan, are the reason I have a Telegraph subscription, Alison. I find myself nodding in violent agreement. Thank you both for speaking out as you have my full support and gratitude, Michael. That's very kind, Michael. Here's a fascinating email from John, who is a senior Harley Street consultant. As for many in the UK, your writing and your broadcasts have given me a sense of security of something to hold on to whilst the roller coaster of irrationality that is our government plays havoc with our lives. I thought last week's podcast was incredible. Congratulations on every victory you make. Far worse than the COVID-19 virus is the sinister and pernicious betrayal of freedom of speech and sensible debate by the Bass Media and by Whitehall. Whether they know it or not, the whole population should be thankful to the few journalists and those scientists who have the courage to put their heads above the parapet. A pet theory of mine, this is very interesting, co-pilot, those patients that I see who are the most nervous about the pandemic are the alpha males. They need control in their lives. Part of their makeup is self-preservation, perhaps as part of vanity or narcissism, which includes their fear of mortality. They tend to be quite hypochondriacal, arranging annual scans and screening tests that are totally unnecessary. One friend falls into this group, an eminent academic who understands statistics and risk, except when it comes to himself. So he's had a year of fear and social withdrawal. Obviously, it's the alpha males who generally reach the very top of the tree in life, especially those who enjoy influence. I just wonder if some of the irrationality demonstrated by the world's masters who are driving the current lockdown agenda and project fear reflect a projection of their own individual and collective fear. I was both interested and horrified to hear about Ofcom's censoring of the media. Certainly it makes sense. Something must be going on. I remember treating a very senior person in TV news last summer who said something very peculiar was going on at the top, something that he'd never felt before during his 30 years there. Shocking, and it sadly lends some credibility to the conspiracy theorists that I have met on anti-lockdown marches. I've been working normal hours since last June, pretty much. Maybe 50 to 80 of my patients have had COVID. Many are in their 80s. Many are taking immunosuppressants and have comorbidities, not one of my patients with COVID has been hospitalised. Anyway, please continue the fantastic work, Alison and Liam. It is so admirable and important. John, well, thanks for that theory, John. That kind of tallies with some of what we've been talking about, doesn't it, Copilot? It certainly does. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, Email of the week, it's my call. 
It's got to be Linda. Linda, send us your postal address, email it in planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and you will be sent a coveted Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we jolly well hope you do, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does really help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow and it makes co-pilot Halligan feel very, very special. (laughs) Over to you. And before we go, some news about us. Planet Normal will be taking a two-week break from mid-July so your co-pilots can recharge their batteries. It's the first time we've taken a break since we started back in May 2020. So we won't be with you on July the 22nd and we won't be with you on July the 29th. So next week you'll hear Planet Normal, but not on July the 22nd and not on July the 29th. Yeah, Liam and I will be swimming to the South Sandwich Islands, which is, uh, I think, one of the few few places we're allowed to go to. We know many of you really enjoy listening and have made Planet Normal part of your weekly routine. So we did want to let you know about our break and we will be back, hopefully, bouncing and refreshed. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitz and our editor Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>